Well, good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. In fact, uh, I want to do something. I know there are some folks here as we honor the memory of those who have gone before us and protected the freedoms that we have here. I know some of you are veterans or maybe active duty. Would you just stand for a second if you are a veteran or were active duty at one point? I know there's a couple of you in here. Yeah, give them a round of applause. Thank you for your service. We love you all very much. Um, and I just want to pray uh, uh, for those who are serving actively right now. So if you would bow your heads with me, I'd appreciate it. God, thank you so much for the protected freedoms that we have in this country. Uh, especially this morning, we, we pray and, and we thank you for the religious freedoms we have to worship freely. We honor those who have gone before us, who have given the ultimate sacrifice to protect those freedoms. We pray for the protection of those who are currently serving uh, in our country and around the world. And we pray for those who have, have served and are sitting among us and people that we will run into in the coming weeks. God, may they just know that they are loved and honored for all that they have done. In your name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. All right. All right. Well, let me, last week, we took a look at one of the great debates among the first, search, first century church. And at the beginning of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have returned home to Antioch of Syria after a long trip around the Roman Empire, mostly around what would be considered modern-day Turkey today. And they are battered and beaten, literally. If you remember, Paul has been stoned nearly to death while he was in Lystra, and he has traveled back now to Antioch of Syria. Those are some serious injuries that will take months to recover from. So they're enjoying some R&R time with friends and family. But as we saw last week, there really is no rest for the weary in the first church and especially among the leaders. And so while they're at home, this group of people come from Judea, a, a distance of about 300 miles to Antioch of Syria, and they bring this complaint to Paul and Barnabas. Now, traveling this far distance, these guys are serious about the demand that they have. And the men have come to demand that the new Gentile, that is non-Jewish Christians that are being converted all over the known world, they come to say, look, that's fine and good and well, but in order for it to be real, in order for them to truly be saved, they also have to be circumcised and fall under the law of Moses. Now, if you aren't sure what the law of Moses is, think about the first five books of the Bible. There are 613 laws in there that God said, I want you as my people to follow this. And so these Judean men are saying, listen, if you're going to be a Christian, that's great if you're a Gentile, but you also have to be Jewish by your identity. And so this uh, debate erupts because Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, 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 because of Jesus, it's only by grace that we're saved now. There is no more requirement of circumcision or following the law as it was prescribed in the Old Testament. And the, this, this argument gets so heated that they decide, look, this is not going to be solved by us. So let's go back to Judea, to Jerusalem, and let's sit with the apostles and the council there, and let's decide what their and our decision will be on this matter. So they travel the 300 miles back to Jerusalem, and they have a long discussion, it says in the book of Acts, about this debate. And at the very end, Peter stands up in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, and he says, I have my ruling on this, and that is that everyone is saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. And then James, 
the half-brother of Jesus, the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem, he stands up and he gives his ultimate decree on the matter. And he says, listen, I've listened to all the arguments. We've debated for a long time, but I declare that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised and fall under the weight of the law, which by the way, Jewish brothers and sisters, we've not been able to keep very well over the history of time. Why would we force them to do that? But then, if you remember, James says something that seemingly contradicts himself. In the same breath that he says, it doesn't require the weight of the law's requirements on the shoulders of the Gentiles. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to be subject of all of these rules and regulations. He then says this in verses 20 and 21. Do you remember this? He says, instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. What gives, James? What's up, James? It seems like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, right? These Jewish or these Gentile Christians, they don't have to follow the law. They don't have to be under the circuit, you know, the, 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 the covenant of circumcision. But oh, by the way, there are a few of these requirements that we want you to keep. What's going on here? Well, this is where we're going to pick up things up in Acts chapter 15. So if you have your phone with you, you can open up the YouVersion app, go to more in the right-hand corner and events, and you find Genesis there. You can follow along. Or if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. We'll be starting in verse 22. Now, as James said in verse 20, he has instructed the council in Jerusalem to write a letter and then send it to the churches around the Roman Empire that are composed of Gentiles predominantly, right? This was their their mode of communication. There were no phones. There were no uh, text messaging. There was no WhatsApp, none of that stuff. It was letters, right? And they didn't want it to just be word of mouth. They wanted it written down. They wanted it signed by the council. They wanted it to be approved by them. They wanted it to be official. So this is where we pick it up in verse 22. It says, then the apostles and elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. And so now look at, recognizing they can't just send Paul and Barney back by themselves, right? They're going to need some witnesses to this. Because Paul and Barnabas, they had one side of this argument. They were only one side of it. And so they decide, look, we're going to send you back, but to make it, you know, confirmed and so everybody can go, okay, it's not just Paul and Barnabas telling us what they think of the matter. They're actually sending these other guys, Judas and Silas, to confirm that matter, that decision. So the four of them go back to Antioch of Syria. And it says in verse 23, it says, this is the letter they took with them. It reads this, this letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we didn't send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement to send you official representatives, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, 
from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. Yeah, it's funny, right? So let's break down what's happening here a little bit. Because as important as it was for the council in Jerusalem to determine that it's only by grace that through Jesus that a person is saved, the requirements in verse 28 and 29 are equally important to understanding who Christians are to be in light of God's grace. Now, first off, it's critical to note that in verse 28, they make it outrightly clear that this was not just some decision they made, you know, on a whim. It says, for it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And it indicates their overall reliance on the Spirit's movement to instruct them and guide them on how to best deal with this situation and the confirmation of the entire community that was surrounding it. By the way, I believe this is how we should always make decisions as a church body. That we as a leadership team, as a staff, we often are seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit and then looking to confirm those directions and guidances by the surrounding community as well. It's not just me barking orders to our staff or to our leadership team or our church. We do it by the Holy Spirit's leading and the confirmation of the community and those who have been appointed to leadership. So this is what they do. And so unlike the men of Judea who go on their own, which by the way, they said, we didn't send them. They just went off the rails, right? And they just went up there by themselves. That was not us. They don't go out of self. They went out of selfishness and legalism and tradition. This is not how the council in Jerusalem wants to go about making this decision. Instead, they're given, these instructions are given because the Holy Spirit has directed them and it's been affirmed by those who were present. And here are the three requirements the Jerusalem Council determines for the Gentile Christians in Antioch and beyond. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols. You must abstain from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals. And you must abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I realize that other than abstaining from sexual immorality, this may be a curious list to those of us who live in the 21st century. Right? But these were big issues for the church scattered in the Roman Empire at the time. While the church in Jerusalem was mostly exempt from the influence of the Romans and pagan religion outside of it, the newly founded churches in places like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and Cyprus, in modern-day Turkey, were surrounded by paganism. In fact, many of the new Gentile Christians in those areas have come out of those pagan religions in their cities and have now been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so most of their lives, they went to the market and they would purchase the meat of animals who were once sacrificed at the pagan temples, right? You'd bring a sacrifice to the temple, you would sacrifice it, they would cut up the meat, and then they would sell it to those who were in the public who wanted to buy the meat. This was a common practice in these Roman cities. They were also accustomed to eating foods that were made from blood from animals and animals who were strangled and not just cut by the throat like was required by Jewish law. 
you know, and so to them, these things weren't really a big deal. They've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, and now these things they've always practiced, you know, God makes it clear. Paul's been telling them, look, none of that matters anymore. It's not a big deal. They have to determine, you know, Zeus isn't a real thing anyway, so what does it matter if I eat the goat that was sacrificed to them? right? It doesn't matter to them. For most Gentile Christians, it didn't matter if they ate foods prepared with blood or from an animal that was strangled instead of cut. They probably didn't even know the difference. They'd been doing it their entire lives. All that mattered to them now was God's grace in and through Jesus Christ. But they weren't the only Christians in the area. You know, though they would have been a minority there were also Jewish Christians in the churches of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and throughout Cyprus. And so for them, the issues of eating meat, sacrificed to pagan idols, eating foods prepared with the blood of animals, and eating meat from strangled animals was a big deal. It was a big deal. Just like the Gentile Christians had spent their entire lives eating those things and not thinking about them, these Jewish Christians, who are new to the faith as well, have spent their entire lives avoiding all of those things. They had been following these instructions their whole lives. They weren't about to just abandon them completely. It wasn't just something they did because they were quite... It was, this was who they were. This was their dietary uh, lifestyle. And in addition to the instructions regarding food, the Jerusalem council sees it fit to remind the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians to abstain from sexual immorality, which is important because many pagan temples in the areas being written to often encouraged sexual perversion as an act of worship to the local gods, which is a normal thing. You would walk by a temple and it was X-rated. This is how it was done. It was just a normal part of life. And these new Gentile Christians coming out of that pagan culture are having to wrestle with what is acceptable and what is not in light of this newfound faith I have with Jesus. Now, it may seem that like this list is just adding rules and requirements for the Gentile Christians to follow. It may seem like James is speaking out of both sides of his mouth, where he's saying, you don't have to require, you know, it's not required for you to be circumcised and follow the law of God, except for these things, right? It may seem like, well, James, you're just doing the same thing. But in reality, the list that's given to the churches around the Roman Empire is less about following rules and legalism and more about teaching the churches and the Christians there what it means to become people of grace. You see, even though the Gentile Christians could continue to eat meat sacrificed to pagan idols and foods prepared with blood and animals that had been strangled, there was nothing prohibiting them from that. It was the Holy Spirit's leading and the confirmation of the council in Jerusalem that said they should abstain from it as an act of grace toward their Jewish brothers and sisters. It's an act of grace on their part, James is saying, to avoid needlessly offending their Jewish brothers and sisters. He's calling them to deeper community with each other. After all, there was an act of grace for the Gentile Christians, right? They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to fall under the law that was extended by their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so James is saying, yeah, that's true. But we need to learn how to both be people of grace in this. Because your Jewish brothers and sisters, 
it is offensive to them when you eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. It's offensive to them when you eat meat that's been prepared with blood or that's been from a strangled animal. These are big issues among them. And they're not just abandoning that. It's part of who they are. So let's be people of grace. Because, and James is saying here ultimately, if we're saved by grace, then we are people of grace. If we're saved by grace, then we have to be also people of grace. And people of grace don't needlessly offend or cause others to stumble in their faith. It's silliness to do that. You know, the heart of a person of grace is not, well, I'm free to do whatever I want, so you just have to deal with it. That is not a gracious heart. No, the heart of a person of grace is, I would never want to needlessly offend or derail your faith. So I will sacrifice my liberties for your betterment. And it's not in a codependent way, right? It's in a compassionate, loving, gracious way. This is what James and the council in Jerusalem are calling these people to. They are requiring the followers of Jesus to be people of grace, to understand the context, to understand that we are not called to needlessly offend each other just because we can. And this is a very practical way that James is saying the Holy Spirit is leading us to be a community of grace, which means that at times we need to sacrifice something that we could do for the betterment of those who are a part of our community. Now, one might wonder what happens when this message reaches the Jewish and Gentile Christians abroad. Could there be a new debate, right? These Jewish Gentiles are going, wait, what? Why do I have to stop doing that? That's ridiculous. I've always eaten my meat from, you know, the temple of whatever. And they, you know, they got good prices over there. It's $4 a pound for the goat or whatever. Like now you now I got to go to the Jewish kosher temple. It's $10 a pound, whatever. Like, you know, you might have some debate here. They're not going to really like this. Much like the argument of circumcision, but that's not what happens. Look at verse 30. The messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. There's no fighting, there's no debating, only great joy, Luke reports. They were led by the Holy Spirit, they were affirmed by the council, and the message was received well. The people get it, they get it. They can see that because of God's grace to them, they are now called to be people of grace to each other. They want to go deeper into community with one another. They want to love each other well. They want to express grace to each other in a deeper way. Verse 32, then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. Do you see what's going on here? There's a growth mechanism. There's momentum with what's happening. Verse 33, they stayed for a while, and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. They and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. Now listen, the church does not always get it right. We are guilty of getting it wrong far too many times. In fact, this chapter ends with one of the more disappointing moments in the history of the first church. The next verse, which we won't get to for a little while, talks about one of the more disappointing moments 
in the history of the first church. But for now, the church gets it right. And this is cause for celebration. A major issue arises among the first Christians, and it was resolved appropriately and for the betterment of the community and the witness of the community in the world. The first century church determined that in light of the fact that they had been saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ, they are now called and commissioned to be people of grace to those inside and outside the church. And thousands of years later, Genesis, this message still remains. Like the Jewish and Gentile Christians of the book of Acts, we too have been called to be people who don't needlessly offend or cause people to stumble in their faith. Instead, we apply how Paul would later talk about this in the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 8.13, Paul writes this, So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. I'll give up. I'll give up my tri-tip. If it means that this person will continue in faith, or it means that this person will take a step towards Jesus. He goes on in Romans 14, 13. Let's stop condemning each other. Why do you do that? You shouldn't do that. You should do this. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. As people of grace, we have a responsibility to one another. Given our context, we must never needlessly offend or cause someone to trip up in their faith. Now listen, we believe very strongly as a church in what we refer to as Christian liberty or freedom, which means that there is room for interpretation in areas like what we eat and how we choose to live in certain aspects of our life. But we also believe that that should never be used at the expense of someone knowing and loving Jesus. In other words, just because we can doesn't mean we should. Did your parents ever tell you that? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Now, we live in a culture that worships to some degree individualism and independence. And and I'll be honest, I love that. I love that we can have independence in our own thoughts and we can share that, we can converse with that. But when it comes at the expense of someone else's ability to know and love Jesus, I think Paul would go so far to say, you've sinned against your brother and sister. That's not what people of grace do. People of grace, they don't say, well, I want to do this, so just deal with it. They say, wait a second, I love you as my brother and sister. I love you as someone who's been created in the image of God. I would never want to needlessly offend you by doing something or saying something. Now, that does not mean that we don't have our convictions. It doesn't mean we roll over when someone says, Jesus is not a real thing. No, 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 we got our convictions. But we don't needlessly offend people because I'm right and you're wrong and I want to do this and I don't care how you feel about it. That is not what Paul, what James, what Peter is calling us to. And Peter alludes to this, or excuse me, Paul alludes to this again in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned, Paul said, for your own good, but for the good of others. 
Is that how we walk through life? When you think of your life in the last week or month of your life, is this a picture of who you are? Are are you concerned about how your actions might actually inhibit a person coming to faith? A person knowing Jesus more deeply? Are you concerned about the other or are you of the mentality that, you know what, I've got my independence, I've got my individuality, I know Jesus, I don't care what the rest of you think. I'm going to do what I want to do. You deal with it. Because Paul is saying, that's not how we behave. That's not how we live. We are people of grace. If we've been saved by grace, we are people of grace. You know, a good example of this that sometimes comes up on a regular basis is the, cons- or the, the issue of alcohol consumption. Okay? So while there is biblical freedom to drink alcohol in moderation, We should be aware of the fact that not everyone feels the same way about it and that in some circumstances, it should be avoided completely, no matter what we think. Just because you think it's okay to have a glass of wine at dinner doesn't mean that someone who grew up with an alcoholic parent needs to be around that. Or just because you're able to have one beer and that's it doesn't mean you should do it in the presence of someone who's recovering from alcoholism. You see how this works? Now, I'm not telling, what you're, telling you what your convictions should be on the matter. What I'm telling you is that in the context of Christian liberty, we have to be thinking of the other first. How do I extend grace to this other person? I know you're a recovering alcoholic, but I really like my Jim Bean, so deal with it. That's not an act of grace. It's an act of selfishness. People of grace consider the other above themselves and they never needlessly offend or cause someone to stumble. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I'll say it again, if we are saved by grace, then we are people of grace. This is is who God's called us to be. This is God is leading us to be. We extend grace to those around us in an attempt to never needlessly offend and be a living witness of the grace that God has shown us. I think about this when I'm having a conversation with a friend who's not a Christian. And I would never hold them to a standard they have not agreed to. In other words, just because I've submitted to the life of grace and love and authority of Jesus doesn't mean that they have. And therefore, expecting them to somehow abide by the same standard is not an act of grace on my part. Now, certainly, I can share my convictions, and I will, but I would never want to needlessly offend or cause that person to trip up coming to know Jesus because I expected them to abide by a standard they never agreed to. It'd be a little like if you went to a Buddhist temple and they held you to the standard of a Buddhist monk. You'd be like, I didn't agree to that. But we do this, don't we? We look at people and we're like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And we might be right about that, but the reality is we are called to extend grace to people and not expect them to live to a standard, a biblical standard they've never agreed to with the hopes that one day they will come closer to Jesus, be saved by the same grace that we've been saved by and in turn become people of grace in their own ways. This is the call of the Christian. Now I'll be really real with you here. 
Because here's the reality of this. For us to be this, for us to be people of grace, it will require an enormous amount of selfless sacrifice. After all, how did God's grace come to us? Through the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that it will remain the same for us as well. We will be people of grace when we selflessly sacrifice our rights as Christians for the sake of not needlessly offending or causing someone to stumble in their journey or to the continue of faith. What's our vision? Thank you, Renee. Change lives. I don't remember. It's really catchy. You should catch on. Write it down somewhere. Our vision is we want to be a community of change lives, changing lives. Which means that when we, as a people, have been changed by the grace of the God through Jesus, we become people who dispense grace into the world in very practical ways for the sake of other people experiencing a changed life. And let me just simply finish by inviting you not to just talk about this concept, not to just think about it once in a while, not to just go home and reflect on it, but instead, I want to encourage you to be a person who builds your entire life on the grace of God. That everything you do and everything you are is a reflection of how good and gracious and kind and loving God has been to you. Because when you do, not only will you experience the abundant life that Jesus taught he would come to bring, but you will become a person of grace to those around you. And I am convinced, and James was convinced, and Peter was convinced, and Paul was convinced that it is only through the grace of Jesus in us and through us that we will ever have an impact for God's kingdom in our city. We are called to be changed lives, changing lives. We are called to be people who have been saved by grace, to be people of grace to one another and to those outside the walls of this building. Can we call ourselves to that standard this morning? Can we pray that Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, would lead us towards that and God, we come to you humbly and we admit that often our own selfishness and desire to be independent and individual and have our own way gets in the way of us truly being people of grace. Sometimes I confess, God, that I fight so hard to be right that I forget that that is not the end goal. And so I pray, God, that you would call us to be people of selfless sacrifice who see that there are opportunities for us every single day to set aside what we could do but don't because we want to have a better conversation. We want to invite someone into our community. We want to care for and love another person well. God, that you would show us the ways in which we can be people of grace and very tangible practical ways. Thank you for Jesus, who in and of himself did exactly what we're talking about. I always say, God, you never ask us to do something you didn't do yourself. Jesus selflessly sacrificed his position in heaven to come and to live among us in a sinful, broken world. He could have done anything. He could have called it quits. He could have called the angels, the army, to come and to rescue him, but he didn't for the sake of grace. 
And so this morning, we, got, we ask God that you would change us into people of grace, that we would be selflessly sacrificial in how we live in the same way that Jesus was to us. And that through our changed life, God, your Holy Spirit would reach out and begin to change the lives of others. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.